Okay. Well, I've got a lot of lessons I could teach everyone this morning about vocation. I've got a quick lesson I want to teach us about faith and presumption. Okay. We hope we understand the difference. Um, because I've known for a few weeks now that I might have to preach, but, you know, I was, I had faith that I really wasn't going to have to preach. <laughs> I said, you know, Lord, you know Nick, he's a much better preacher. He's our full-time preacher. I'm like, what's the odds of Felicia having her baby on a Friday or a Saturday or even a Sunday? You know, three and seven chance. You know, that's not going to happen, but that's called presumption. <laughs> God, isn't he never promised me that that would happen, and it didn't. She had her baby on a Saturday, so... It's good because it gives me an opportunity, all joking aside, to really preach about something that's been on my mind for a long time and I think is very important to the life of a church and to the life of any Christian, and that is on vocation. The title of my sermon this morning is Vocation, the Christian's Calling in the World. And we're going to be looking at various scriptures this morning, and I'll ask you to turn to them when we get there. Um, For our worshipers in training, the key words are serve, love, and neighbor. Serve, love, and neighbor. I'm sure that my experience in life has probably been similar to a lot of you. I had my first job when I was in sixth grade, Rinkin Elementary School. Me and my buddy Eddie used to take out the trash every day, and we would we would go to lunch early, you know, and we would get and we would take out the trash every day, and I think we got paid two dollars a day, which was a pretty handsome sum at that time. And so other than maybe about the next four or five years, once I started, got my driver's license, I started working. And I pretty much have been working ever since. So this morning I, I want to talk about vocation because I know that's something that we all, we all do. And, and something that you really need to understand from the outset, this does not mean just those of us who have jobs, okay? We have, and I'll be talking about this, but children, you have a vocation, and that's being children. Um, any, all, each and every one of us has a vocation. It does, just doesn't apply to the work that we do every day or, or what we do going to work for another person, and we'll talk about that a little more. So the doctrine of vocation, I can't really, I don't really um, remember that being preached on a lot. I know we have hit on it here and there, talking about other things. But, you know, this morning, um, the, this basic understanding of the doctrine of vocation that I'm going to be talking about um, leans very heavily on the writings of Martin Luther, who wrote a lot for what I would consider the common Christian person as opposed to theologians or academics. And it follows very closely a book that I read a while back called God at Work, Your Christian Vocation in All of Life by a man named Gene Edward Veith. And I highly recommend that book. We'll just be uh, touching the surface this morning of this, this doctrine and this teaching but I hope it whets your appetite to dig a lot deeper into it and to think about it every single day. Now, most of us that grew up in Christian homes or in, in the church, at some point we memorize the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven. And then the very next line is, Give us this day our daily bread. So have you ever, have you ever thought about that? I mean, we're asking God to give us our daily bread, but how does, how does he do that? Now, it's true, in the history of humankind, God has chosen to miraculously feed people. The clearest example of that is probably manna from heaven that God gave the Israelites. But I think it's true that normally we can say that when God feeds us, when he gives us our daily bread, he does this through the actions of our fellow human beings, right? He he does that through other people. That's how he feeds us. This is the essence of the doctrine of vocation. 
So when God feeds us, who does he use to do that? Let's, let's look at a few people that he uses. What's the first person normally is the farmer, right? The farmer plants whatever crop it is. He, he watches over it. He waters it. He, he uh, harvests it. So if we're, if we're going to keep talking about bread, then the next person would be the baker. You know, he might bake the flour into a bread. Then we have, in our modern day, a truck driver. He brings it to us. Or he brings it to a processing plant where a factory worker works in the plant. There's a, maybe a warehouse worker, a distributor, stock boys in the grocery store, checkout person. Okay, all these, pers- all these people are involved in giving you, usually, your daily bread, but that's not it. What about the bankers? What about the futures investors? Uh, what about the advertisers, the lawyers, the agricultural science scientists, mechanical engineers? And every other person who has a role or a job or a vocation in today's economic system. All of, each one of these people are responsible for you more than likely eating your bagel or your donut or your cereal or grits or whatever you had this morning. So when we know this from the Word of God also, Psalm 111.5 says, He provides food for those who fear Him, and He remembers His covenant forever. But not only believers, Psalm 136.25 says, He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. So we see that, you know, Jesus wasn't, Jesus was honest. He was obviously telling the truth when he, when he said we could pray to God to give us this day our daily bread. We see from the Psalms that it is God who provides all flesh food. But we also know that he doesn't just hand it to us, right? He uses people to do that. So the point is, is that when God blesses us, and this is far beyond food, this goes almost everything that he blesses us with, his normal and natural way to do it is to do it through other people. So all lawful vocations are the means in which God chooses to work out his blessings to all of humanity. So for instance, when we pray for protection for somebody, really what we're praying for is that a policeman will do his job, right, somewhere possibly. Um, when, we're, when we pray for safe travel for someone, we're praying for the auto workers that they did a good job, for the mechanics, for airline pilots and employees, for road construction, construction crews, for gas station attendants so that they can have gas to drive with. When we, when we uh, pray for salvation, we're praying for pastors, usually. We're praying for evangelism. There's a little more that goes on there, but God tells us in his word that we need people there to preach the gospel to proclaim the gospel. So anyone who is proclaiming the gospel are the means God is using to bless people with salvation. So all of these vocations, including anything else we could probably think of, teachers, fast food workers, the inventor, the accountant, the administrative assistant, the CEO, all of these vocations are all very high callings used by God to bless his people and his creation. But, you know, we're, we're in the world real world, right? This is a fallen real world. And from the point of view of each of these workers, sometimes our vocations can be tough, right? Sometimes our jobs can be hard. They can be grueling. Some days they're very boring. Um, Sometimes they are thankless, right? Sometimes we have thankless days in our jobs that just seem to never end. But, and our work often feels meaningless. You know, it's just a means to an end. I want to get to Friday. I just want to survive and we see, we see our jobs as fundamentally taking up time we would rather be spending with family 
or out on the boat or on the golf course. You know, they're just, they're just necessary evils, right, things that we have to do. Now, work is a blessing that was enjoyed by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis 2, 8, 2.15, God gave Adam and Eve the garden, and he gave to work it and keep it. That was their job, to work it and keep it. And it was a good job, and it was good because God said it was good. And they enjoyed their work, and it was a blessing to them. But after the fall, the Bible teaches us that we must labor in frustration and sweat. And most of y'all probably know this verse. I welcome you to turn to it. Genesis three seventeen through 19. It's the first verse we're going to look at a little bit. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And we'll be jumping around looking at a few different verses. So after God, in, in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 15, told them to work it and keep it, then the fall happens. And he tells, God tells Adam in, verse chapter, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, he says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So after the fall, people sin in their vocations and sin against their vocations. So when we are not aware of what vocations are, we don't understand the doctrine of vocation and that there is, listen to this, there is a spiritual dimension to work and to family and to our involvement in society and to school and, again, to family in your family roles and even in your work, there is a spiritual dimension to all of that, okay? And when we don't understand that, when we're not aware of that, we're going to be plagued by a lack of purpose, and we're going to be confused as to how we live out our faith holistically in our day-to-day lives. We're going to be confused in how what we read in the Bible during the week applies to our job. We're going to be confused at what we learn in Sunday school and what we learn in Sunday morning in the worship service. We're going to be confused. How does that apply to me being a dad or me being a mom staying home with my kids or me at my work, you know? So we're going to, that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, Gene Veith, the, the man who wrote the book that a lot of this is based on, says, I'm going to be quoting him a few times. He says, The doctrine of vocation amounts to a comprehensive doctrine of the Christian life, having to do with faith and sanctification, grace and good works. It is a key to Christian ethics. It shows how Christians can influence their culture. It transfigures ordinary, everyday life with the presence of God. So what is vocation? Let's talk about that for a minute. Um, Today, we have a lot of words that we use in our society that really had their origins in theology. They are really just words that were taken from theologians. Okay, words like inspiration was originally a word that theologians used uh, only. Revelation, vision, mission, spirit. These are all words that, that the greater society at large started using. And vocation is also a theological word. It comes from the Latin word for calling. And we've all heard that usually when you're talking about going into full-time ministry, and we'll definitely talk about that some more. But vocation comes from the Latin word for calling. And the scriptures are full of instances that explain that we have been called to faith through the gospel. Second Thessalonians 2.14. I'm not going to read it, but that's an example of that. Or 
how God calls us to a particular way of life. In 1 Corinthians 1 and chapter 7, Paul talks about what are we being called to a particular way of life. So it's with a lot of our understanding of what the Bible teaches, it was developed really fully, I think, during the Reformation time. Because in the medieval church, in, in the medieval church, to have a calling or a vocation meant exclusively full-time Christian work. Okay, if you weren't a priest or if you weren't a monk or if you weren't a nun, if you didn't work at the church for the church, then you didn't have a calling. You, you really didn't have a calling. Any other occupation was seen basically as worldly, okay, or mired in the unspiritual work of the world. So anyone that, that worked outside of the church, they didn't have a vocation. They didn't have a calling. They, just, they did worldly, again, necessary evil type stuff. But in the, Reform- in the Reformation, this idea of the priesthood of believers came about, and it taught that lay people, people that weren't, did not work for the church, as well as full-time church workers, have vocations of their own that have holy responsibilities and that bring blessings of their own. And this, this priesthood of believers taught a lot. Of, a lot. It, it also means that Christians enjoy the same access to Jesus, and we are all spiritually equal before God, no matter what your job is. So uh, the doctrine of vocation really encourages and it makes us pay attention to each person's uniqueness, each person's talents, each person's personality. These, so because these are valued gifts from God, God has given us each of these things as a gift. Um, and, and he has made, made each of us in a way that suits us for the callings that he has in mind for us. So just as the church during the Reformation enjoyed its greatest cultural influence, it had great influence over art and over literature and over music and over education, uh, I think that recovering this doctrine of vocation may open the way for our church today to, again, influence our cultures that we live in. So let's talk about what are some vocations. All right, one thing we need to know is that we all have multiple vocations. Okay, we have vocations, those of us that work at work. We have vocations in our family. We have vocations in church. We have vocations in society. Okay, and that would be more like in the civil realm. So we can have all kind of different type of vocations. So what, but, but the difference between this and maybe something else that you've been taught is that what Luther emphasized, though, was not necessarily what we should do in our vocations, but what God does in and through our vocations. Okay, what God does through our vocations. This, that's the emphasis this morning. It's about what God does. So this makes vocation a, a matter of the gospel because it's a result of God's actions, not our own. This makes vocation not a burden that's placed on us. It's not something we dread every Monday morning, but it's a way to experience God's love and grace, okay, and the blessings we receive from others and in the way God works through us to bless others despite all our failures, and despite all our inadequacies, God uses our vocation to bless others. Luther goes on to say that vocation, he calls it a mask of God. He calls it a mask of God. In other words, God hides himself in the workplace. God is hidden in the workplace. He's hidden in the family. He's hidden in our society. It's like, it's like a child playing hide-and-seek in the room you're in. You don't see them. They're hiding, but they're there. God is there in these activities. So, it, so to realize that, and this helps us realize that in the mundane activities that take up most of our lives, you know, let's face it, most of our lives are taken up with fairly mundane activities. You know, we go to work, 
we change diapers. We drive around our kids and our elderly family members, taking them places they need to go. We pick up something at Kroger or, yes, even Walmart. Walmart's included in this. Um, we go, when we go to church, no matter what we do, we can realize that these are the hiding places for God. And this can be a very eye-opening experience, I think, if we really sit down to think about it. So again, Veith says, Most people seek God in mystical experiences, spectacular miracles, and extraordinary acts that they have to do. To find him in vocation brings him literally down to earth, makes us see how close he really is to us, and transforms everyday life. So that's, that's my goal this morning, that we would, we would seek God not in mystical experiences, but that we would find him here, in, down here with us, and know that he's with us. He is, he is there in everything that we do. So how does God work through human beings? All right, imagine the following scenarios and how we describe God's work, work of grace. So somebody came up to you and said, guess what? God healed me. What's the first thing you think about? You know, I'm sure it's probably miraculous healing. Somebody prayed, bam, they're healed right there on the spot. But I can also say, hey, God healed me. I didn't feel good. I really felt bad. I went to the doctor, um, saw a nurse. She took all my vitals. They ran some tests, lab technician, you know, found, found something. Doctor gave me a prescription. I went to the pharmacist, started taking the medicine, and I started feeling better. God healed me, right? God worked through all those people. God talked to me. What? God talked to me. Really? How did he talk to you? Well, I went to church Sunday morning, and Pastor Nick preached about the law, and I was convicted of my sin, and then he preached about the gospel, that Jesus came and died for my sin. God really spoke to me when Pastor Nick was reading his word. God works through the pastor. God fed me. He, I went to Arby's and some teenager handed me a roast beef sandwich. God fed me today. So God clothed me and sheltered me by giving me a job where I could buy that, those things. God protected me by that policeman that pulled me over. I didn't really like it, but he protected me from my, my own self, from speeding and acting dangerously. You know, God gave me pleasure. There was a musician playing on my CD, man, that really gave me pleasure. So this is how God... Uh, works in the world. And, you know, we have a modern view of God that, you know, God's not part of the external world out there. You know, when we leave here, God's in here. God's in church and God's, he's, he's, or he's far, far above. He's, he is far above. He is transcendent. But, you know, this is our view that he's far above and he's not close at the same time. Or he's inside us. You know, and it's true that he is inside us. But we, but when we think of these things, we're assuming that the world just kind of runs on its own, you know. It just kind of happens. Things out in the world just kind of happen. But is that really the case? Let's turn to Acts chapter 17, if you would. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25 and 27 and 28. You know, does the world just run on its own? Do we sit down and think about that? Do we ever think about that? Acts 17, verse 24 and 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He himself gives us everything. 
And then forward a little bit in verse 27. second half of verse 27 says, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And we, all, we a lot of times talk about God's providence, and we've even taught Sunday school classes here on God's providence, and we usually focus on the fact that he is in control over the world. And that's very true. God controls the world. But it also refers to God's care that he exercises over everything that exists. Okay, God, God's providence also refers to the fact that he cares, uh, his care that he exercises over everything that exists. Turn, now turn over just a few, uh, a chapter or two to Romans, uh, chapter 13. Let's look at a particular example of a vocation in the Bible. Romans chapter 13. Now this is, we're not really going to dig into the details. We're going to look at kind of the overall, something that we can generally learn from these verses. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, said, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So what I want you to see here, we're not going to delve too deeply into these verses, but I want you to see that God works through the agency of human vocations. Here, the vocation is one of earthly rulers. What we see is that God is working in human callings, even in officers who do not acknowledge God. And, but we do need to remember when we read verses like this that God is the ultimate authority. So those under his authority should not abuse or transgress or go against God's authority. If so, they're acting outside their calling, right? They have a calling um, to do what God's told them to do here. And if they, act out, if they disobey that, they're acting outside it. And we'll... We'll talk about this a little later, but the doctrine of vocation is not a formula for keeping the status quo for those who abuse their vocations, okay? But it's all about subjecting the status quo to God's Word. In other words, subjecting our vocations to God's Word. Okay, how are we to carry out our vocations according to God's Word? What we see again is that God's authority finds expression in the authority given to certain human vocations, through these human rulers, they are being God's servant, and they have, they have their power and their authority exists and has been instituted by God. And they're servants of God and they're ministers of God, and we see that here. There's something else I want you to look at. Turn to the chapter right before that, Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. So in, the, in, in Romans 13, you know, he's talking, he's talking about... Um, Rulers are terror, not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, okay? And that, you know, what they're there for is to bear the sword, basically protect 
the innocent against the wrongdoer. Okay? Then in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, read, read this. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is classic love your neighbor, Sermon on the Mount instruction, right? Love your neighbor, even your enemy. So we see to love your enemies and evildoers in chapter 12, followed right behind it by where it says God punishes evildoers, you know? So, you know, which one is it? And this, the doctrine of vocation clears this up for us. The principle here is that what is permissible in one vocation is not necessarily permissible in another, right? So when God says vengeance is mine, he's telling us that he uses the human uh, vocation of governing authorities to do that. That's how he carries out his vengeance. We as individuals, we don't do that. We are to forgive and we are to overcome evil with good, understanding that God will avenge the wrongdoing. He'll either do it here through his human agents or he'll do it on the day of judgment. But it is ultimately up to him and his divine wisdom and judgment to carry that out. So here's my main point up to this this far. These verses are as much about how God provides and cares for us as about who has authority over whom. Okay, God provides and protects us through human vocations. His care and provision extends beyond the walls of the church. Okay, he takes care of us beyond the walls of the church, right? We don't go exclusively to a Christian grocery store or a Christian bank or a Christian doctor or a Christian clothing store necessarily. Um, we don't have to because in the realm of society, it doesn't make a difference whether a plumber is a Christian or not. A Christian or not. Okay, though sometimes we do that because it makes us more comfortable, right? But the ultimate issue is, is he a good plumber and does he charge a fair price, right? If he's good and he charges a fair price, that's how God's going to provide that care to us. Now, Matthew 5.45 shows us that God sends the rain to the just and the unjust farmer. And the scope of God's care is probably far greater than we imagine. We probably don't imagine when we call a plumber that that's God caring for us when it comes through and we get these things fixed. And he is more intimately involved with all of his creatures than we imagine. Remember, it's that day-to-day. God is there and God is involved. So let's talk a little bit about the purpose of vocation because it's very interesting. You know, in the Reformation, you know, we were taught and we saw that the Bible teaches that our salvation has nothing at all to do with our works, right? Our salvation is completely... God's doing. But at the same time, it produced a lot of teachings that God has created us for good works, okay? So our salvation has nothing to do with our works. It's it's the free gift of God. But, you know, out of the Reformation, we got this Protestant work ethic, and we got this heavy emphasis on doing good works. So how how do we reconcile that? Well, next scripture I want to look at, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. If you want to turn over there. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. A very, very popular verse. We're going to look at 
A lot of people stop at verse 9 sometimes, maybe. But let's look at verses 8 through 10. So Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see here that our relationship to God has nothing to do with our works. Okay, we've, we've been taught that. We understand that. It's only the work of Christ. Our relationship with God is because of the work of Christ. But our relationship to others has everything to do with our works. It has everything to do with our works. In Luther's larger catechism, it says, In God's sight, it is actually faith that makes a person holy. It alone serves God, while our works serve people. And another Lutheran theologian, Gustav Wingren, put it this way, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. So in our different vocations and serving our neighbors, we're actually, and I think this, thankfully, this sermon fits in pretty well with the Ten Commandments. Because in our different vocations, when we're serving our neighbors, we're actually fulfilling the greatest commandments, right? As affirmed by Jesus himself. He said, you shall love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the sum of the Ten Commandments. So we can love God because he first loved us. Apart from Christ, we know only God's wrath against our sin. But through faith in Christ, we have a mediator and we are covered in his blood. So we can know God as our loving Father. Through faith in Christ, we can know God as our loving Father. And now that the Spirit of God is at work in our hearts, we can love our neighbor as we should. So what are good works? Genuine good works have to actually help someone, right? You got to actually be helping somebody if you're doing good works. Jesus said he came not to be served, all right? Jesus told us he came not to be served. So strictly speaking, in the spiritual realm, Jesus serves us by becoming sin and offering up himself as a ransom in our place. And we serve God through our faith in Jesus. But in our vocations, we're not particularly necessarily serving God or doing good works for God, but serving our neighbor. And if you've got issues with that, just hold on. Stay till the end. We're not necessarily serving God, but we're serving our neighbor. Again, Veith says, This locates moral action in the real, messy world of everyday life, in the conflicts and responsibilities of of the world, not in inner attitudes or abstract ideals, but in concrete interactions with other people. So what's the purpose of vocation? The purpose of our vocations are to love and to serve one's neighbor. This is the test of our vocations. How does my vocation or my calling serve my neighbor? Who are my neighbors and how can I serve them with the love of God? So this brings us to another aspect of vocation. Just as spiritually we are utterly dependent on God in the earthly kingdom, our state is one of utter dependence on other people. Now, we don't like to hear that. It kind of goes against our contemporary values, right, of independence, self-sufficiency. We're independent. We can do it all ourselves. You know, my kids, no, I don't want your help, that kind of thing. But... 
you know, we talk, and that's, you know, we hear people not wanting to be dependent on anyone in our old age or in our illnesses. Many people say they would rather die than be dependent on somebody or on their family, even though most of us, when, our, when we were young, we were completely dependent on our family, right? But this is really an illusion, okay? We do depend on others every day. The farmer, like we've talked about, the plumber, the doctor, our parents. We depend on others every day for our very lives. And this was God's purpose from the very beginning, was that people would not be alone, right? In Genesis 2.18, you know, God said it's not good for man to be alone. But if we are dependent on other people, then that means what? Other people are dependent on us, okay? This is not a lazy welfare dependence, but an active exchange. My gifts for yours, my vocation for your vocation. This is why the Apostle Paul can write to us things like, in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He, if you don't work, you don't eat. Why? Well, because everybody's, other people are dependent on you to work, and you're dependent on other people. Or that we should, in 1 Thessalonians 4.11-12, he said, We should aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Well, this is a dependence of idleness, okay? This is a idol-like dependence. Apostle Paul says you don't want to be dependent on anyone because you don't work, okay? So in our lives out in the world, in, each, in the way each of our vocations interplay and connect, we're always receiving and we're always giving, right? This is the dynamics of God's care and this is how we show our love for each other. In our vocations, we're always giving and we're always receiving. And even though our non-Christian neighbors, even though the, their motivations and their vocations are, are not love, they're not, um, God still uses them for his own loving purposes. We saw back in Romans 13 where God uses the governing authorities for his purposes. But for the Christian, and here's this is an important, important thought, for the Christian, love of neighbor should become something that we consciously feel as our faith becomes active in our love. So it's our faith in God that makes our love active, right? That's our service to God. So as we grow in Christ, the everyday tasks set before us can be motivated and shaped by love, no matter what those tasks are, whether you're a student and it's your what you're doing in school, whether you're a child and it's obeying your parents and you're also in school probably, whether you stay at home and manage the household, the changing of the diapers and all that, whether it's your work that you do, everything that you do, whether it's being a husband or a father or whatever, these are all become real because of the love of our neighbor and as our faith becomes active in our love. And we can do this because of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, obviously, is the foundational reason, but we practically can do this because we know that God is hidden in our vocations and God is hidden in our neighbor, right? So we can serve and love our neighbor because God is hidden in the things that we are doing and the people that we are doing them for, right? Jesus says this in Matthew twenty-five forty. He says, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So in Jesus' account of the final judgment, he reveals that he himself, Jesus, is hidden in our neighbors. Here, it's particularly those who are in need. 
God is there. What motivates us to love our neighbors is to see Jesus being there with them and possibly in them. So the farmer and others feeding the hungry, they're feeding Christ because he is there. The mother dressing her baby, she's dressing Christ because he's there. The nursing home attendant is taking care of Christ. Employers and employees, husbands and wives, rulers and subjects, pastors and their congregations, whoever our neighbors are in our vocations, we are to see Christ in one another. Now, he accepts what we do for others as if we had done it for him. And here's where I'm getting back to who we're doing it for. He accepts what we do for others just as if we had done it for him. So, in fact, it does turn out that when we love and serve our neighbors, we are loving and serving God after all, right? Because he just told us that in Matthew twenty-five forty. So when we're loving and serving our neighbors, we're loving and serving God at the same time. So I feel like I'd be a little remiss if I didn't speak a little, just briefly about finding your vocation. Okay, once we understand the biblical view of vocation, it changes the way we approach finding our vocations. Instead of what, what job should I choose, the question is, what is God calling me to do? Our vocation is not something we really choose for ourselves, but it's something that we're called to. Finding your vocation then has to do in part with finding your God-given talents, what you can do, and your God-given personality, what fits the person you are. But vocations also come from the outside, right? Having to do with opportunities and circumstances. So since God works through means, he often extends his call through other people by means of their vocations. So in this sense, our calling comes from outside ourselves. It it comes from the opportunities that we see. You know, we can't just go get any job we want or do anything we want to do. It's based on our circumstances and our opportunities. So I want to say this again. I've already said it, but our vocation is not one single thing. But we have different callings in different realms. We have the workplace. Okay, we have whatever our vocation is there. But we also have the family. We have the society and the church. For instance, in the family, my vocation is being a husband, okay? In society, you know, I'm a voter. You know, I take responsibility. I could be an activist. I could, I could do things in society. And in the church, I'm an elder. You know, again, not the preaching elder normally, but I'm an elder. Just like each of you have vocations, some in the workplace. Most of all of you have a vocation in the family. We're all sons or um, daughters. We have vocations in society, and we have vocations in the church and those are all very important and we may even have different vocations within each one of these realms you know for example within families we can be a husband we're also a father we're also a son we're also a brother etc same in our workplaces some of some of us are bosses over others and we have bosses over us you know those are different vocations different relationships and in our churches we have many opportunities for vocational service which may be seemingly small, but prove to be a great blessing for the congregation as well as the leadership. So if you're a deacon, that's a vocation. If you help lead music, that's a vocation. If you're a Sunday school teacher, budget team, those are all your vocations, and you are loving your neighbor through those also. So we need to understand, though, also that callings can change. You know, if you're a college student, your calling's probably going to change. You're probably going to have a job, a vocation, full-time job one day. Your vocation is going to change. You know, that's okay. 
You know, that's that's the natural order of things. Um, you know, we may get a promotion. We may find a job that better provides for our family and that better fits, you know, my personal qualities and qualifications. You know, so our vocations can change. But our motivation should not be for status or for prideful reasons. Because to the Lord, all lawful vocations are equal in status. You know, whether you're the... You work at Arby's or whether you're the CEO of a multinational corporation to God, you're both serving your neighbor and where he's put you. So this also shouldn't obscure the fact that the relationships and duties and the daily work that God has given to each of us right now is a divine and holy calling from the Lord. Again, our culture is obsessed, right, with future-oriented things. We're always looking for the next thing, the next gadget, the next job, the next thing to make us happy, okay? And this has the, uh, the uh, potential of pushing our attention to the future to the detriment of what we're doing right now, to the work God's given us right now. You know, when I was in school, I always wanted to graduate. I always wanted to get to the next grade. I always wanted to do the next thing. But sometimes, and that's not always bad, but sometimes we neglect what God's given us to do right now. Again, quoting Wingren, we must live in the hour that has come. That is the same as living in faith, receptive to God, who is present now and has something he wants to do, something he will do right now through each one of us. He's got something he wants you to do right now, not a year from now or a month from now. He's got something he wants you to do right now. So this doctrine of vocation, though it had to do with human work, again, it is essentially about God's work and how God works in and through each of our lives. So last section, our calling as a worker. All right, let's turn back in conclusion, back to Genesis. Go all the way, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. This will be our final scripture we look at. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Back to the beginning. We see that God established a vocation for Adam and Eve at the very beginning, right? Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this human work that we do, these vocations that we have, ultimately they're imitation of God, right? They're imitation of what God does. Being creative, ruling, subduing, multiplying, causing plants to grow, making things, building things. These are things that God does, and yet God gives them as tasks to each one of us to do, to human beings. Now after the fall, we've already talked about our work remained but it was a cursed work that not only produced food, but along with it produced thorns and thistles, things that hurt us, things we don't like, things that bring pain. So work now, our vocations are a blessing and a curse. Work can be satisfying since we were made to work, but also frustrating and exhausting. It's a virtue tainted by sin. But through it all, we must remember that our work ultimately is serving others. Um, police, well, okay, final end of the sermon. Um, 
after 9-11, after it was all over, you know, after all the effort and all the tragedy, after all the horrors and all the rescues and after all of it, when people talk to the policemen and the firemen and the rescue workers after 9-11, you know, what did they what did they say? Most of them just said they were just doing their jobs, right? That is the doctrine of vocation. Ordinary men and women expressing their love to God and their neighbor just by doing their jobs. So this doctrine of vocation gives us a theological way to think about work, right? That's what I kind of want to hope to leave you with, a theological way, a biblical way to think about work. It's the theology of the Christian life having to do with sanctification. It's very much tied into our sanctification, right? As we're sanctified, as we become more and more like Christ, we're going to love our neighbor more and more. We're going to desire to serve our neighbor more and more. But it's also a theology about ordinary life, right? Christians, we don't have to be called to the pastorate or to the mission field to please God, though some are called to do this, and we need people called to do that. But you don't have to be called to do that to serve God. Neither does the Christian life involve constant mystical experiences. Rather, this is important, the Christian life is to be lived out in vocation, in the ordinary tasks of life that take up nearly all the hours of our day, in our family, in our work, in our community, in our church. God is present in them and in us in a very mighty, though hidden, way. Now, in this Advent season, we are reminded that God hides himself most of all in the incarnation. When he came, he came not as a warrior or as a king or some other glamorous vocation, but as a homeless child to a poor family who laid him in a manger. He grew up and assumed the station of a criminal executed by the state. And through his vocation, he was humiliated and he suffered and he won our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful today again for your word. Lord, we are so thankful that you are with us in a very real way every day. As you have promised, you will never leave us nor forsake us. So, Father, I pray that each one of us, as we live our lives, as we go through every ordinary day, that we would recognize and understand that you are working through us, through the Holy Spirit, Lord. You enable us and empower us to go out, do our jobs, do our vocations, serving others, serving our family, but ultimately serving you. Father, we do thank you that you came and you served us through your Son, Jesus. Lord, thank you, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.